1 Corinthians chapter 2 And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Today, more than ever before, preachers and teachers in local churches are under an enormous pressure to perform. Um, of course, there's always been accomplished public speakers, those truly talented orators, and the church has always had its fair share of those, um, those specially articulate people who have the presence and the charisma to immediately capture our attention and, and to hold us enthralled and captivated by their every word. And years ago, these people would tour the big cities and maybe some of them would even visit some of the more major regional centres. And so some people would get to hear them maybe once a year if they're lucky or, or if they got to head off to some special conference event. That was then. But now, with the accessibility of Christian radio and Christian television and video on the internet, we can hear world-renowned speakers in the comfort of our own home any day of the week. Or if you live close enough to a cell tower and work close enough to a cell tower, you can spend most of the day listening to brilliant speakers while the green star steers the tractor for you. And so we, the sermon-listening public, well, we're quite blessed. We're able to listen to any great speaker we want to from anywhere in the world simply at the press of a button or the touching of a phone screen. And sometimes we can start to think, well, who wants to listen to ordinary old Joe Blow when he gets up to speak in the local church anymore? And whether it be real or whether it be perceived, many preachers and teachers don't feel that they could 
ever live up to the standard that's being set for them today at a worldwide level. And it's really hard to get new people to, to take up and, and to start giving it a go, to preach and, and, and to teach the word of God, because they just feel that they're so terribly inadequate. But pressure to perform, it's not a new thing. It may be a little more emphasised now than what it used to be, but it's not entirely new. Paul came under that sort of pressure at Corinth. But the thing is, preaching the gospel isn't about having a thoroughly entertaining message. It's about being a witness to Christ. It's about teaching the truth of Christ. And the purpose of Bible teaching is to point people to Jesus and to aid those who have decided to follow Jesus to be the true disciples of Jesus in the ways of Jesus. The teaching ministry is actually very important. But what's not important is the charisma of the speaker. But unfortunately, way too often, we go for the charisma rather than the content. And we can see this if we look at the example of Paul. Um, Paul's writings were tremendously important. If it wasn't for the writings of the Apostle Paul, we wouldn't know near what we do know about Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation. I think he wrote around about 30% of the New Testament. And a lot of what he wrote was, was what is directly teaching us about Christ and the gospel. And yet this man, Paul, he, he was a very unimpressive sort of a chap. Um, in the second century, we actually get a physical description of him. Paul was described as being short, with a bald head, crooked legs, he had a monobrow, and a hooked nose. Now, that doesn't sound like a particularly impressive sort of a fellow. And Paul himself admits that even when it came to his public speaking, he wasn't any particular sort of a public speaker either. He said, when I was with you, I was in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. And you might be able to identify a bit with Paul in that. He wasn't a great speaker. He trembled when he got up to speak. I can identify with Paul in that. Um, I may have told a few of you, I don't tell too many people this because it's a bit embarrassing, uh, but the first dozen or so times that I ever preached, I was so nervous uh, it affected me physically, and, and I had diarrhoea for about the first dozen times, for a whole week leading up to it. And it, it took me a while to connect the dots. I, I just had this upset tummy, and then all of a sudden it'd get better, and then maybe a month or so later I'd get this upset tummy again. I didn't know what was going on until our own preacher, our own minister in our own town, shared with us his story that he, he said, I, I preached on my lantern for the first, first dozen times that he preached, because he had the same problem. And that's when it hit me. That's what was going on. I was so physically nervous. I, di I didn't know I was that nervous, but I was. But you see, for Paul, the message wasn't about presentational excellence. It wasn't about being a fine performance. For Paul, it was, it was about a demonstration of the spirit, of, of the spirit and of power. Now, we might jump ahead of ourselves and say, well, well, Paul didn't need to be a good speaker because of all of the miracles that he was performing, all of this demonstration of the spirit and the power. Um, but I don't think that's at all 
what Paul's talking about when he talks about, about um, demonstration of the spirit and of power. I'm not sure that the miracles and the signs and the wonders is, is what he's talking about because back in chapter 1, he downplays the need for these sorts of signs. I think the demonstration of the Spirit's power that he's talking about is the salvation of those who believe. Despite the unimpressive nature of his preaching, despite the apparent folly of the message that he was telling them, the Holy Spirit was touching people. The Holy Spirit was changing people's hearts and moving them to believe. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but that's every preacher's dream. That despite whatever bumbling performance we can put together, people still give their lives to Jesus. That's the power of the Spirit. Do you understand that this is a greater demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit than if the blind begin to see and the lame begin to walk? The transformation of a life. There is no greater power. What about you? If you got to choose today, what, what would you be most excited to see? Would you be most excited to see somebody get, out of their, get up out of their wheelchair and walk or for a, somebody who had been rebellious toward God to turn their heart over to him and to be changed? Which would you choose? Which would you be so, more excited to see? What would you tell more people about down the street? And yet we know what God would choose, don't we? A rebellious heart yielded to Jesus Christ is an enormous demonstration of the power of God. So, when Paul planted that church in Corinth, the purpose of his preaching was to ground them in the message of the cross and to ground them in the power of God and not in the wisdom or the greatness or the eloquence of some public speaker. But is that where the message ends? I know some preachers who would say, all we should ever preach is the cross. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Therefore, we should never preach anything other than the cross. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is we should be grounded in the message of the cross. That foolishness to those who don't believe, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Faith begins at the cross. But what then? Is that the end of the task of the preacher? Is there no further need for teaching? Is the only job of a teacher to lay down and explain the path to be saved? No, that's not the end of it. Paul goes on to say in, in verse 6, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And in verse 13, he says that we, referring to, to him and other teachers, interpret spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, I was a bit torn as I was preparing for today because I'd really like to take chapters 2 and 3 together. They, they really go together, but I knew that we wouldn't have time. Uh, so when I preach again in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to hear Paul say in chapter 3, verse 1, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. 
as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. Right? He wants us to be grounded in the gospel, to be grounded in the cross, but he doesn't want us to remain mere infants. God wants us to be growing. He wants you to be growing. He wants me to be growing. There is so much more about the mysteries of God for us to be taught. And we shouldn't consider all of this as, as merely useless head knowledge or window dressing. In Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, Paul is taking up pretty similar sort of a, a topic. And he basically tells us that we need to be mature and taught the word of God. Why? To help us to distinguish good from evil. And that's pretty important, don't you think? Every one of us has to make that judgment call whether something is good or whether something is evil, whether something is right or whether something is wrong. We have to make that judgment call every day of the week. It's how we establish our morals or our ethics. It's how we live as children of God. It's knowing the answers to well, whether should I, I should participate in something or whether I should abstain from it. It's answering questions like, well, how should I vote in the Australian Marriage Survey? Or is it okay to drink alcohol? What about getting drunk? Is that okay? Does a mother have a right to kill her unborn baby? Or here's one that's in the news at the moment. What about euthanasia? Is it okay to put somebody old and sick out of their misery by finishing them off? What about dating? Is it wise to begin dating someone who's not a Christian? What about shacking up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? What does God have to say about that? Is it okay to get a divorce? Or is it ever okay to marry someone who is divorced? What about IVF? Is it okay or isn't it? When should I obey the law of the land? And when should I disobey the law of the land? Is it right for me to discipline my children? And if so, how should I discipline my children? What about unrepentant sinners? How should I relate to them? And what about if they're in the church? How do I relate to them then? These are just all examples of questions that all of us have to grapple with every day. That they're examples of questions about how we properly live out our Christian life as disciples of Jesus. And how are we ever going to know the answers to these questions? Even though not every modern issue is specifically addressed in the scriptures the principles are all there and as we study God's word answers can be found but here's the thing only the spiritually mature will understand what God says on these things and only the spiritually mature will accept and obey what God does say. Verse 14 summarises it by saying, the natural person, and that word natural, it's the psyche, the mind, the thoughts of the person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they're spiritually discerned. 
You know, sometimes when we're talking about issues of morality and what's right and what's wrong, Christians can have such a very different perspective to, to people of the world. And even when we try to explain it, they just don't get it. Why don't they get it? Because they're not filled with the Spirit. Paul describes it like this. Do you guys always know what I'm thinking? I thought of the bananas and pyjamas about this. Do you know what I'm thinking, big one? I think I do know what you're thinking, big two. Um, but do you guys always know what I'm thinking? Of course you don't. Out of everybody here, Robin knows me best, and I even surprise her sometimes with what I'm thinking or with what I'm not thinking or by the fact that I'm not thinking at all. Um, <laughs> we can guess what somebody else is thinking. Sometimes I can read it on your face and go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what they're thinking. But it's still only a guess, only guessing what people are thinking. But we don't really know what somebody else is thinking, do we? I can't know what you're thinking unless you tell me. And even then you have to tell me truthfully. Otherwise, I still don't know what you're thinking. And even if you do tell me, I still mightn't understand your reasoning, that, that reasoning behind why you're thinking what you're thinking. Because no one can understand you, apart from God, of course, except for you. And verse 11 says, it's the same with God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. I can't know the will of God because I'm a human. If I want to know the will of God, if I want to understand the thinking of God, if I want to understand the things freely given to us by God, the freedom, the forgiveness, the boundaries, the grace, the love, God's direction, his ethics, what is right and what is evil. If I want to comprehend the thoughts of God, the only way that I can do this is to be spiritually mature to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's why some people make such a hash out of interpreting the Bible. Because their starting point and their processing filter is their own human thoughts and their heart's desires. Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And yet isn't that usually where we start interpreting what's right and what's wrong? We start with our hearts. I reckon the most dangerous part of Bible interpretation is humanly speaking, we crave self-justification. I know this because I, I examine myself. We want to be right. We like to see ourselves and our choices as righteous. But the only way to rightly comprehend the thoughts of God is to have the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's difficult to know what God is saying. Sometimes it's difficult to obey. The natural person, if I'm letting my human psyche, my human thoughts rule in my life, I'm going to have great difficulty understanding what God says in a given matter. But then again, sometimes we know exactly what God says. 
about how we should act. But then once again, because we're not living by the spirit and because we're letting the flesh reign, we act contrary to what God says is right. Am I the only one who does that? Where even when we know the right thing to do, we still do the wrong thing? So the person who is spiritually mature, the person who is living by the Spirit, gets it. They get it. When a, when a teacher rightly teaches God's Word, they get it. They understand it. They know what God's will is. They know how it should be applied. And so they obey it. But if we're not spiritually mature, if we're living by the flesh, if we're letting our own thoughts and our own deceitful heart rule, well, even when a teacher rightly teaches God's word, we just don't get it. We just cannot comprehend why God would take that position. We cannot comprehend why God would expect this of us. And so we disobey God. Or we do understand and we still disobey God even though we know it's wrong. Both these things are signs of spiritual immaturity, where we let the flesh rule and let our own thoughts rule and let our heart rule rather than the spirit. So, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? You might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm only a relatively new Christian. Um, what hope is there for me? There's people here who have been Christians for many day decades, but for me, I'm a newcomer. What hope do I have of discerning the will of God? Well, you've got a lot of hope, actually. The spiritual maturity isn't so much about how long somebody's been a Christian. It's not about whether you've been to Bible college or not. It's not about whether you were born into a Christian family. It's not about whether you're a good speaker or a celebrity Christian of some kind. It's not even about how many jobs you do in the church. Not even spiritual gifts are a sign of spiritual maturity. Did you know that? You might know someone who can prophesy, or who can heal the sick, or who can speak in tongues, or who have faith that can move a mountain. Or you might know somebody who is especially gifted and they can do all of these things, but not even spiritual giftedness is a sign of spiritual maturity. In fact, we're going to discover that later in this very same letter where the spiritually immature were destroying the church in Corinth in the way that they were using their spiritual gifts. Sometimes our perspective can be very wrong about what spiritual maturity actually is. Paul redefined spiritual maturity in terms of Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Those who are Christ-like are the spiritually mature. They are like Christ. He describes it there. He talks about having the mind of Christ. Now, the word there, mind, it's nous. It's our intellect, our understanding, our reason. It's what makes Christ tick. 
And the best way I can describe to you what it means to be Christ-like or to have the mind of Christ is to describe the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, it's all about our character. It's about who we are. It's about how we act. It's about how we relate to God. And it's about how we relate to others. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. To become spiritually mature is to become like Christ. Now you might be thinking, well, I thought I had to know stuff. I had to be experienced to be spiritually mature or to understand God's will. Well, that might help a bit. But head knowledge doesn't help us with how we apply what we know. Something to keep in mind is this letter was written to a church that was tearing itself apart. There were some there who were arguing with one another and fighting with one another over spiritual issues and over moral issues. And they'd come to the place where they'd say, well, I follow this teacher. And they'd say, well, I follow that teacher. And some say, well, I know what's right, you don't. And they say, well, but I know what's right, you don't. And, and Paul just turns all of this arguing and all of this bickering on its head. You think you know the mind of God? Well, you're certainly not demonstrating it. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here because that's what's coming in chapter 3. We don't know the mind of God unless we have the spirit of God. And if we have the spirit of God, then we will know the mind of Christ. Sorry, we will have the mind of Christ. Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. None of us like to be judged, do we? I expect to see a few shakings of the heads here. It is so hurtful, particularly when we believe that we've done the right thing and acted appropriately, and yet others judge us. And if, but if there's one thing that will make people judge us faster than anything else, it's when we judge others. Jesus told us this. He said, if I start judging other people, then that measure that I'm using against those other people, well... Folk are going to start using that judge against that, that same measure against me. Right? When I start pointing my finger, fingers are going to start getting pointed back right back at me. But there's a better way. The spiritual person judges all things. Now that doesn't mean that the spiritual person judges all people. Judging all things is talking about having a means to decide, being able to resolve being able to interpret and understand spiritual truths. That's the judging that it's talking about. So the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. How does that come about? It's because they're a spiritual person. In Galatians, where the fruit of the Spirit were listed, 
it ends by saying, against such things there is no law. In other words, if we live by the Spirit and our actions are the very Christ-like actions of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if we exude these fruit of the Spirit, when we hear God's Word being taught, we will not only understand God's Word, but we'll also know how it should be applied. It'll make sense to us, and then we'll be walking in step with the Spirit, and no one will have grounds to rightly accuse us or to judge us because we've been acting with the mind of Christ. That's where the Pharisees got it wrong. You know how Jesus used to always get up the Pharisees? They presumed to know the mind of God. And they would judge others harshly in a manner that they believed was according to the word of God. But they're interpreting it through their own thoughts, their own mind. And their actions were anything but Christ-like. I find 1 Corinthians chapter 2 really encouraging, and I hope you guys do too. Um, You and I, we don't have to fall into the trap of the Pharisees. We don't have to fall into the trap of the spiritually immature at the Corinthian church. We can know the mind of God. That's pretty encouraging, eh? We can know the mind of God because God has given us his Holy Spirit. The challenge for us is to live that Christ-like life seeking above all things the fruit of, our, fruit of the Spirit in our own lives so that, we are, so that we are living by the Spirit, having the mind of Christ. Isn't that good news? I reckon it's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be a child of God, We thank you that in your grace you call the sinner, the broken, the lowly, the nobodies, to have the mind of Christ. And we praise you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, even the most simple soul, even someone like me, can understand your word when it is taught. Lord, we pray that you will increase our spiritual maturity that we would know and obey the mind of God as we live a Christ-like life. In Jesus' name, amen.